All right, let's go ahead and get started. Hey, my name is Andrew. I'm from uh, Netflix. Joe Shea, AWS Technical Account Manager. All right, so today we're going to talk about running containers at scale on, uh, at Netflix on top of Amazon EC2. The first question you may be asking is, why do we need containers when we already have this really great architecture you've probably heard of that Netflix has that's based on virtual machines? I mean, it's very resilient. It has worldwide failover. It's certainly cloud-native. We've been running on AWS for a very long time. Um, it's elastically scalable, all the good things, right? Um, so did we really need containers? What we found a few years ago is, yes, we could uh, use another tool in our tool belt when it came to compute other than virtual machines. And what we found was containers gave us a better way to package application-specific artifacts. So while an OS-level uh, AMI was a great tool for uh, a, a pretty standard service in our infrastructure that was Java services, it really didn't fit the bill for people that wanted to customize it, especially in polyglot um, different language environments. We also wanted the ability to do local development. So use the same container you're running on a laptop in production and be able to kind of move easily between the two. The other was really came from our batch side of the house, not just our services, was they just wanted a simpler way to manage compute. They wanted to say, I need this much CPU, I want this much memory, and I want to get the job done. So this is where we introduced Titus. Titus is the uh, little logo you see on my shirt. It's also the name of our container management platform that we've built on top of uh, AWS. It does both service and batch. What I mean by service is typically uh, microservices, things that are run uh, until they're redeployed for a newer version. Uh, batch are things that run to completion and we just make sure get to their end state correctly. Uh, we do fleet-wide resource management of a fairly large fleet that you'll see. And we also have integrated our container runtime with not only our Netflix tools and infrastructure, but also very deep AWS integration, which is what we're gonna talk about today. A little longer intro to myself. Uh, I, I manage the team of 10. I was an engineer when the team was of size three. Uh, became a manager a few years ago. And the 10 people up here are, are the uh, engineers that actually have uh, designed Titus, have developed it, and also operate and support it. So we carry the pager for the service that runs these containers. From a product management perspective, when we set out to build this thing, uh, we didn't fo focus on containers, as I said earlier. It was really about making things uh, easier for our developers. It was about velocity. We really didn't focus on cost efficiency. We weren't trying to get a better uh, bin packing than, say, virtual machines. Uh, so our, most, our highest priority was developer velocity. Uh, of course, this is a key part of infrastructure at Netflix, so reliability was our second focus. And then cost efficiency is something we get in, into more recently as the years have gone on. We also wanted to continue to use virtual machines. So it had to be uh, a platform that you could move seamlessly from a virtual machine into a container. The virtual machines and containers needed to continue to connect with each other. Um, it just had to work for those things. And another thing is we wanted to make it work for just what Netflix needed and have some uh, special uh, logic that works for Netflix. You can read the abstract, but this is, this is kind of why we see this container management platform as different um, than others, other than the fact it's special built for Netflix. We really deeply leverage EC2. We believe strongly in our partnership with uh, AWS, and we see this as a differentiator of our container management platform versus others that may try to abstract clouds. Um, we really try to leverage the underlying cloud. At a really high level, 
this is our architecture. Uh, so you'll, well, I'll use these terms as we go through the presentation. So it's worth noting uh, the control plane on the left. That's where our API is. That's where a scheduler that does resource management is at. And on the right are thousands of virtual machines that are sliced up in containers. We call those agents or hosts. That's where the user's containers are running. We've built this around Mesos. We've built this around Docker. Uh, and we use AWS to uh, provide us the underlying compute fabric. Um, on the left-hand side, our users of Titus are our deployment platform for services, something that's open source called Spinnaker, and many, many batch and workflow systems uh, that run jobs in those containers as well. So how do we leverage EC2 uh, in this container environment? As I said earlier, we really wanted to make it work very easy with virtual machines, and we wanted portability. That meant three really key things. It meant that we had to work with a networking fabric, uh, VPC, that's in Amazon. We had to make sure that security groups continue to work so we could do ingress control from containers to VMs and from VMs to containers. And that AWS services that are based on IAM continue to work uh, natively and you didn't have to do anything custom in your application. So our key leverage points then are EC2, VPC, and IAM. From an EC2 perspective, we use tens of P2, 8XLs, pretty beefy uh, for some of our GPU jobs. Uh, then it gets to our batch um, environment where we're using memory optimized instances and we use hundreds of R4 16XLs. And then if you get to our general services uh, fabric, we do thousands of M4 16XLs. There we go. Um, from a VPC and security group perspective, we've written a network driver that integrates, uh, the whole big box is an EC2 VM that's sliced up into three containers here, and we wrote a networking driver that would provision secondary ENIs, elastic networking interfaces, that have security group configured, and then we do uh, Linux kernel work and, and, and traffic control work to get the IP traffic into these hosts, uh, that are the container instances that are inside of this host, um, and do uh, quoting and quality of service, uh, bandwidth rate limiting, those kind of things that you would expect from a networking perspective. But by the fact that we leveraged VPC directly, we just get security groups uh, sort of for free and we continue the security model from a networking perspective. From an IAM perspective, we have what, um, on an EC2 instance, you have an instance metadata service that's on 164, 169, 154. Uh, we impersonate that inside of the container. Uh, so when a container starts up, we'll inject a metadata proxy into its networking path. And when it asks, hey, what host am I on? It'll get a containerized view as opposed to the host view. When it asks um, things that are specific to VMs, we'll say, yeah, that doesn't apply in this case. And really importantly, when it asks for what are my IAM credentials, what are my instance level credentials, we will, on behalf of that container, assume role into that role, get the credentials and pass them back to the container. So now that container can continue to work with the IAM services that it had before. Another place of security, you'll see security, security, security through this and how we're leveraging uh, EC2 for that, is cryptographic identity. So if you wanna put secrets into your containers, uh, we actually leverage the um, instance metadata um, uh, and KMS in the future uh, services that already exist in Amazon to prove two things. One, the tightest host that's launching this container can prove to our Netflix infrastructure that is, it is who it says it is based on the fact that it was launched from uh, EC2. 
And Spinnaker, which is our deployment system, as it's launching jobs in Titus, can sign those jobs and say, this job was submitted by someone that is trusted and is who they say it is. That lets us put one and two together and call our internal uh, security services and get the identity for this container and prove it based on um, uh, EC2's uh, security model. So with that, that's the basics. I want to turn it over to Joe to talk about how we started to leverage Amazon more deeply. So I'm part of the enterprise support team uh, as a technical account manager. Technical account managers are the designated technical point of contact for most customers. And we're expected to be a virtual part of the customer's team. And uh, we need to be as proactive as possible for customers' operational needs. So as a TAM, we have many roles and we have many jobs to do. However, our number one uh, job is customer success and our primary role is to be the customer advocate within AWS. So, TAMs like to emphasize the technical part of their title. We're builders. We love, to, we love technical things and we love solving problems. We come, and we come in many, many technical flavors. Unfortunately, I do not come from a container flavor. My builder experience is data centers. So, but Netflix had reached a point in the Titus project to where they needed deeper collaboration with AWS. And so for me, it was an interesting journey just to see how this seemingly misplaced infrastructure guy was able to help Netflix build a, uh, be able to bring containers in as a first-class citizen into their uh, environment. Yeah. So talking about places where we could really leverage and, and think through things with Amazon, the first is auto-scaling. So we always had the ability to auto-scale the entire Titus fleet, all the resources that were in the fleet, um, through native AWS auto-scaling, but what we lacked was the ability to auto-scale clusters of containers that were inside of uh, our users' applications. And we had a couple choices in front of us. One, we had other infrastructure teams uh, at Netflix that had written their own uh, auto-scaling engines. Uh, the fact was they were great, but they were purpose-built. They didn't have all the feature set that exists in the uh, virtual machine auto-scaler, the ASG service. Um, and if we pick them up, we're going to have to operate them. We're going to have to own them. The next obvious one for most people at Netflix is, oh, we can write a, a, another one, right? Now instead of two, we've got three. Um, the reality is we would end ended up at the same place. We would have built something fairly special purpose. Uh, it wouldn't have the feature set, as, especially as Amazon continues to add features. And we'd be chasing that feature set. Uh, and again, we'd have to operate it. The third choice was we could look for one from Amazon Web Services. Um, it was, you know, there was already a great auto-scaling engine that was continuing to advance its feature set uh, in virtual machines. It was very feature-rich, but it only worked with virtual machines. It didn't work with containers. So a true story is I went down and, and talked to Joe. Uh, I think it was actually our first introduction, and I said, you know, I have this crazy idea. Like, what if we could use the AWS auto-scaling for Titus container-based applications? And so I remember 
sitting on the other side of the table in the break room. I was really minding my own business, and someone pings me, and one of our liaisons pings me and says, hey, you need to meet the container manager. And so I sat down with Andrew, and, so, and we started discussing his idea. I started probing a little bit, tried to understand what he was trying to do, because for me, as a, a customer advocate, I really need to understand not only the requirements, but what they're trying to achieve. Otherwise, I cannot make a good case inside of Amazon without that, without that knowledge. So toward the end, after everything was forming in my head, I thought, this is a really crazy idea. But however, I have a customer need in hand, and I have a job to do. So I reached out to the product management team to, uh, to, uh, to start sharing some ideas with them and start collaborating with them. And I came to find that the auto scaling team already had something like this in design. They were already thinking about this. They already had a customer use case for this, but it wasn't fully fleshed out yet. So they wanted to partner deeply with Netflix to make this a reality. They really wanted to try to get, uh, they really wanted to work around this use case to see what a general purpose auto scaling API would look like to a customer, as well as use this as an opportunity to make a, to, uh, make a uh, to put forward a contribution to the uh, open source uh, world with the release of Titus. And after many, after many meetings, many iterations, multiple issues to work through, we were able to, we were able to release uh, application auto-scaling in July of this past year. And now anyone can use this, uh, this new service to scale virtually any application that they want. And now Andrew's gonna go over how Netflix was able to integrate with this service. Well, thanks, Joe. So I said before, most of our users that are doing services that would be auto-scaling uh, use Spinnaker. Uh, all of our users that were using Spinnaker already understood how to configure scaling policies with inside of our deployment system, Spinnaker. Uh, they could do things like step scaling, they could do things like target tracking, they could see how their metrics were uh, working in CloudWatch, they were seeing when alarms were being um, uh, triggered, and they could see when the scaling actions. Uh, this is actually a screenshot of it in the container environment. It became exactly the same. So now, by picking Amazon's auto-scaling uh, service that was used for VMs and using this custom uh, resources with application auto-scaling, we could deliver the same exact experience to our container users when they wanted to auto-scale. And how does this work under the covers? Uh, so on the left-hand side is uh, Spinnaker, in the middle is the Titus uh, control plane and, and containers, and on the right-hand side are the Amazon services. So when a user wants to do auto-scaling, they configure an auto-scaling policy in Spinnaker. Uh, that comes into the Titus control plane. The Titus control plane reaches out to Amazon auto-scaling and puts a policy in place for auto-scaling. And then as user containers are running along and emitting their metrics, they're emitting those metrics out to CloudWatch. CloudWatch alarms are going off. And the really key feature that application auto-scaling added here was the ability for it to call back into us as a customer to say, hey, this policy that is, you have an alarm configured on is now alarming, adjust your instance count. So it doesn't adjust the number of containers that are running in, in Titus, it tells us what we should do, we pay attention to that, and we start containers when they're needed.
So the next one I wanted to talk about was networking. Why don't you uh, show us what you saw from a more proactive uh, engagement? <laughs> so I started noticing these, what I would consider unusual API calls from uh, coming from the uh, Netflix account. And just by looking at this, I strongly suspected that this was Titus, but I knew that it wasn't scalable. So in order to really dig into why this is, is we need to understand from an infrastructure point of view how we look at applications. So formally with Spinnaker, you would have an application landing on an instance. So it was tightly coupled one-to-one. -one. And then they would use auto-scaling to basically be the control plane of those instances. So in essence, an auto-scaling group would become the logical container of an application. So you could point to this auto-scaling group and say, this is an application. However, in the Titus container world, now you have a shared fleet of instances. And then within this fleet, you now have multiple network interfaces attached to this fleet. And associated with this are dozens and dozens of IP addresses. And now from an infrastructure point of view, your application could be any group of these IP, of these IP addresses. So in essence, what happens is, is that we go from a single API call to now five API calls. So effectively uh, multiplying the number of mutating actions happening within the account by 5x just to scale your application. And so we had to work uh, pretty closely with the EC2 control plane team to understand the impact of these types of actions and, uh, their, and this type of behavior. And then uh, Andrew's gonna talk about why this became so important. Yeah, so previously I talked about how we run out of, uh, we have a worldwide highly available Netflix service. We do this by running out of three regions of uh, AWS. So we run out of US East 1, EU West 1, and US West 2. Um, what that allows us to do is if we deploy bad code in a region or we're having a problem that can't be remediated fairly quickly and the Netflix customer is gonna notice, what we do is a Kong failover between regions. So what you'll see in this, in this graphic is something happened bad in US East 1 at the beginning at the, at the red arrow. Um, and what we did was in about five to seven minutes, we can globally reallocate all of our traffic to send half of that traffic to US 1 and half of that traffic to US West 2. Um, it means an interesting thing is we have to start a lot of infrastructure really quickly when that occurs in the EU West 1 region. It's a, it's a challenge to us, uh, as Joe was saying, he was seeing these call behaviors, but it's a challenge to us of, we really have to get that savior region up and running really quickly. This is launching thousands of containers in somewhere between the five to seven minute range. This is easy, right? Containers are fast, right? <laughs> um, no, no offense to these works, they're, they're great amount of work, but they usually, uh, when you read the works about containers and how fast they are, they're usually on a single node, or they're talking about a synthetic scheduling sort of benchmark, uh, or they're certainly not uh, working with cloud networking. Um, because as, I, as Joe was showing, 
not only do I have to start the container, I have to pull the Docker image, um, so I have to do a whole bunch of S3 access. I also have to integrate with cloud networking, so I have to start a whole bunch of IP addresses. That's something that's hard, really hard to do really, really, really fast. But with uh, Amazon and Titus, we can now do this, and I'll show you how we've uh, changed Titus as well as how we've worked with Amazon to make this happen. Uh, the first I'm gonna cover is our scheduling behavior. The second I'm gonna cover is what we do on each of the agents from a networking perspective. So Titus has a scheduling system that lays out the resources within the cluster, and during normal scheduling, we do spread uh, scheduling as our algorithm. So what that means is, as an application starts, we will put in as many hosts as possible. So here you can see application one came up, it landed on three hosts, it ended up starting up three NIs, and it started up three IP addresses to host that application. Also, if application two comes on, we'll spread it out as wide as we possibly can as well. And this really gives us the trade-off, the best trade-off for reliability when you're writing a scheduling system. Now, when we get into failover, that case of being able to start all these containers really, really fast, we actually switch our scheduling behavior to a more packing-based uh, scheduling behavior. What this means is, as we start up more of application one, we're gonna start up as many of them as possible on as few as instances as possible. The Docker image is already there, the networking interfaces are already there, all we need to do is get IP addresses. Similarly with application two, we'll put it on as few as hosts as possible. Uh, we'll rebalance this later, but this is the way that we can get the most quick work done within the overall system. And this of course trades off for speed. So now getting back to Joe and what he was seeing um, well, was that we do some interesting things from the API perspective. So first of all, I said we had these uh, networking interfaces already existing. I kind of lied a little bit. Um, what we do is we actually allocate them at boot time. So we will, when we launch an instance, we'll launch and attach as many ENIs as that host can support, and we get that out of the way. So no longer do we make that API call, uh, both the create and attach. Uh, the other thing we do is what we call burstable uh, allocation of IPs, and we worked with uh, Amazon on this, where we figure, as I said, I was gonna bin pack a whole bunch of application one onto one of the nodes. Instead of asking for one IP address, I ask for N IP addresses, with the theory is, if I'm in failover, if one container's coming, there's probably a whole bunch coming after me. So we'll get all the IP addresses together. If we overshoot, no big problem, we'll just go ahead and uh, garbage collect them later. So Joe can tell us what that saw, what he saw after that on his side. And we can see here that there was a huge improvement in their call pattern here. So by doing, by really working with us and understanding what the impact of these API calls are doing, and basically designating what they can do up front by pre-allocating, they've essentially freed up more of their bucket space to be used when they really need it. Also, the, uh, they, they batched whenever they could. Anytime they, they could use a batched uh, API call, they did. Because if you can get one, you can get two for the same price. Why not, right? And also being very intelligent about, their, uh, about when they can, uh, do their API calls. And uh, when they're doing their Kongs, they need to be fast. But otherwise, go for availability. 
And it was super important for them to understand how their uh, API buckets worked to really optimize to get the speed that they really needed. And now that they're now with all their optimizations, instead of worrying about five separate calls trying to stomp on each other, trying to compete with each other for resources, now they only have to worry about one. And this is uh, far, obviously far more scalable as well as far easier to predict and project where you need to be in the future. Thanks. So taking this to the bottom line, how this was most important to us is results. So this is one of our recent failovers uh, into uh, EU, uh, EU East 1 in this case in our production environment. And you can see that we started 7,500 containers in about five minutes. And this let us uh, satisfy those failover requirements that we had. So this is real data. This is not a benchmark. This is real world production usage. So next, I wanted to cover uh, load balancing. This was the next place we started to look at. So originally we were running containers and we were mostly focused on what you guys know as our uh, uh, Netflix service environment, what, what is Netflix.com. And we've had a pretty advanced load balancing set of technologies for some time, uh, both uh, Zool and Eureka, which are open source. And the way they work is at the highest level, we use Route 53 geo uh, location uh, DNS to split between the three regions of the world. Once we know that we're in a certain region, we're gonna go through the ELB, uh, CLB in this case, um, and then we're gonna come down into Netflix infrastructure, and at that point, it will spider out using uh, Eureka-based uh, service discovery and RPC. Uh, this was a really rock-solid uh, service discovery um, and RPC tech set of technologies. But it was really complex. Like if you were participating in this environment, you were a fairly beefy application that was part of our streaming control plane. What we found as we started to go out to other users inside of Netflix in our partner ecosystem, uh, in our content space, in our, our growing uh, studio space, they wanted a simple, simpler solution for hosting applications and doing load balancing. They just wanted ALB support and some uh, NLB support as well. Uh, this was a problem for us uh, initially with Amazon, but we worked again together with Amazon um, on this. Uh, instead, the, the problem really was if you looked at NLBs and ALBs uh, previous to the re release of IP-based uh, application load balancing, you could only tie an ALB or an NLB to an instance. As you know by watching the rest of this presentation, we have many IP addresses on the same instance, and we wanted to actually attach the IP addresses, uh, not the uh, instances. And in fact, at reInvent, uh, I think it was two years ago, we had a hallway conversation that was like, what if we could do this? And this is what resulted. So again, showing you how it works. Again, in Spinnaker, uh, the same sort of controls that you would be used to with a virtual machine. You can define an ALB or you can define an NLB. And now when you're setting up the target group that you connect it to, uh, instead of a cluster, you connect it to an IP uh, group. And that IP group gets attached to a Titus cluster. How does this work under the covers? Again, the Spinnaker, Titus, uh, AWS services across from left to right. When somebody configures this in Spinnaker, uh, it creates an IP target group directly in the ALB, uh, NLB control plane. Then the user associates that target group with a container cluster that's running inside of Titus. And as ingress traffic is coming into these containers, um, and containers are starting and stopping, 
Titus updates the IP target list that's in that NLB and ALB. So now we can have uh, elastic uh, number of containers under that IP target group. And again, only made possible with the additional uh, addition of the IP target uh, technology in ALB and NLB. So wrapping up, um, talking about uh, all these features, they've led us to some, uh, you know, fairly significant usage of containers at Netflix. It was not a short journey. I want to, if anybody's starting their journey into containers, uh, don't believe that you're going to snap your fingers and then overnight you're going to have everything running in containers. In fact, Netflix is nowhere near running everything in containers at this point. Uh, it started at the end of 2015, where we were mostly running uh, the benefit of containers for those batch jobs that wanted simpler compute. Uh, we waited until uh, around the early parts of 2016 even to get started with services. Uh, they were basic services, they were internally facing, they weren't production impacting. Uh, and we learned in that environment, that's where we got our networking up and going, our security models up and going. Then we moved on to production services, and what I mean by this is they were business impacting, but they weren't Netflix customer impacting. Where we uh, worked there quite a bit was with our stream processing folks uh, that were listening to events that if they went down, they could catch back up with about a four-hour delay. We never wanted them to go down because it definitely had a business impact. But if it went down, the Netflix experience continued for our customers. And towards the middle of 2017 is where we first turned on our customer-facing services. And at this point, if you're using Netflix on pretty much any device, you're going through some sort of container uh, in Titus. So really hardcore production uses. But it took us the greater part of, uh, what, three years, two, two, two and a half years. We're not just using it for services. Uh, we're not just using it for batch. Uh, we're doing uh, GPU-based workload, as I talked about with the P2s. We're also running Netflix encoding, so turning uh, raw streams into the streams that you watch. Uh, we're using it in our studio uh, technologies. Our CDN is something called OpenConnect. We do planning and monitoring of our global uh, CDN through Titus. Uh, and we also do a lot of big data uh, workloads. So we do uh, big data notebooks, we do Presto, we do a whole bunch of other things uh, within our container environment that come out of our big data side. And then finally, you know, things in our own backyard. I I'm part of uh, productivity engineering. Another part of that is our CI uh, and our build systems. We do massively parallel CI systems uh, in containers as well. What this has led to is we were at tens of containers um, when we started this. I, I actually remember uh, our monitoring of how we were doing in a container environment was an email we would get daily that would tell us all the containers that launched within that day. Um, that didn't scale. <laughs> uh, and now we are hitting at peak three million containers uh, within a week. And this has been a growth, as you can see, since uh, the chart starts around uh, beginning of 2016. You can see the growth. Uh, pattern as people have adopted this technology. The other thing is it's some other uh, data points in terms of numbers. Uh, we're running thousands of applications if you just measure it by container images that are being launched in Titus uh, every day. Um, I talked about the, the hundreds and thousands of different uh, R4s and M4s. Uh, if you throw that all together, we're running about 435,000 uh, vCPUs managed in this Titus system, running these uh, user containers. And I said we've hit three million uh, peak per week uh, containers. We've actually launched close to three quarters of a million within a day. That's been our highest peak so far. All working uh, on Amazon. 
The other thing is this is open source. Uh, we like to open source a lot of stuff at Netflix. Uh, we open sourced this in April 2018. So if you want to go and read more, you want to join a conversation about it, understand it more, if you go out to uh, Netflix GitHub IO slash Titus, uh, you can learn more about it. We didn't do this to get a whole bunch of other people using our open source technology. We did this because we saw things like ECS, we th saw things like Fargate, we saw things like Kubernetes and EKS growing, and we wanted to make sure that our AWS integration and our ideas about how to do things at the scale that we're doing made it into these other technologies and open source projects. So, so far I talked about what, we're, what we have done. Um, let me talk about where we're currently at and where we're, where we're going. Um, one of the cool projects that's uh, going on right now that I think we're waiting for after the holidays to uh, deploy is we've had a fairly sophisticated set of uh, CPU quoting and, and CPU and memory isolation and networking isolation. But what we found was that basic CFS, basic quoting and container runtimes wasn't sufficient. We found if we let the processes that were in containers float about across packages within a CPU or across uh, vCPUs or hyperthreads versus main cores, that we would get outliers in terms of uh, uh, what you saw from a compute perspective. Uh, we also didn't have the ability to let workloads sort of burst uh, across the un underutilized resources within a single node. Uh, and we're introducing uh, a scheduler that's actually down on each one of the agents that will watch as containers come in. And for latency sensitive workloads, it's gonna repack them onto the cores and CPUs that give them the most uh, benefit from NUMA and processor caches. And for things that are opportunistic, we'll let them burst across the remaining resources that aren't allocated to those latency sensitive. So watch the open source for that as well. Um, taking this to the next higher level, I was talking about that for using compute on every individual node. We're also looking at what our compute story is across nodes. Um, we buy reserved instances to run this fleet. Uh, with inside of those reserved instances, our users tell us how much capacity they need. Inside of the capacity they told us they need, they actually allocate that, some of that capacity, and then they actually use some of that capacity. It means that there's a whole bunch of capacity that we've paid for that no one's using because either people have overestimated or we have a failover capacity that's not being used if we're not in a failover. And we're looking to introduce opportunistic workloads where we can co-locate our batch jobs that are bursty into that trough of underutilized resources that our service jobs are opening up. So a definite efficiency play we're starting to move into as well. Another one, the, the final one I'll talk about is uh, nitro and bare metal based instances. You heard that we're on M4s and R4s and we're on those because we've you know, proved them to be very reliable, we've managed them very well. We're starting to look at moving on to the M5s, the R5s and then bare metal. Uh, and we're doing this because we don't really need a hypervisor there. Um, we do a lot of this low-level performance instrumentation that you need for this CPU isolation, and we think we can get more out of bare metal that we can get out of the virtualized servers. Finally, maybe we'll come back at the next reInvent and talk about our next partnership. What do you think it'll be, Joe? That's a good question, but I mean, I'll tell you one thing. It's been an amazing journey, you know, helping you guys uh, build this thing. Uh, and we really couldn't have done it without your just willing partnership and also the amazing support we got from the AWS service teams. And uh, whatever it is, I mean, I really hope the first thing I think is, that's a crazy idea. Truly. <laughs> All right. Thank you.
I, I should remind everyone to fill out the session survey, but uh, other than that, uh, we can definitely take some questions. Okay, so the question was, when we develop this, how do we test it? Uh, I'd like to say that there's a really easy answer to that question, but it's, it's a very, uh, very involved answer. So I'll start at, you know, all the code bases involved, of course, have a certain level of testing from a unit uh, system level testing perspective. Um, as Titus is uh, developed and, and features are on their way to production, we actually have a staging environment that gets torn down constantly and then stood up with the latest code, runs it through uh, system level tests and smoke tests. And then as we roll out Titus, since there's thousands of hosts, we no longer roll out to every host simultaneously. We'll roll out a partition at a time and kind of canary it and watch for signals that tell us how we're doing. Um, and we put all those things together to have the maximum testability uh, across the board. Uh, so the cross, the cross, the, the, the follow-up question was, what about the cross impact between, say, Amazon uh, and Netflix? Uh, what we do is we spend a fairly long amount of time in sort of the design process. Uh, we try to get through most of the issues there, but then we work together and we will run it in one of our sort of test stacks or staging stacks for a certain amount of time before we'll roll it out to production and we'll give feedback to Amazon as to what we're seeing. Um, and then they'll make uh, iterative changes on their side and we go back and forth. Good questions. Other questions? Andrew. There's a, hey. So, so the question was how do we monitor Titus with the uh, millions of containers? Uh, so uh, Netflix for some time has had an internal system for telemetry called Atlas and we leverage that fairly uh, heavily. So for containers that want to have their own telemetry and manage their own uh, monitoring, they just use the existing monitoring solutions that the VMs would, which was basically based on CloudWatch plus uh, Atlas. Um, for Titus itself, again, it's a fairly <laughs> long answer just in that uh, we have, I think it's, it's thousands of metrics that come out of our control planes and agents. It's hundreds of dashboards. It's um, probably tens of alerts and three SLOs. Uh, so each of those levels, it gets more and more coarse grained. So we usually are looking at our SLOs, which are launch latency, API availability, and crashes that are outside of the user's control. Uh, and that's what we're looking at at the highest level. And then if we have an issue, we'll dive down to the alerts that are probably already firing that are telling us what's going on. And then we'll look down at the dashboards and metrics that are uh, making up the overall system. Another question. <laughs> so the question is why ECS did not work out for us. Uh, so ECS was uh, started a good bit after uh, Titus got started, so that's the easy answer to the question. Um, the more complex uh, answer to the question is 
We've got some uh, fairly advanced scheduling technology that is needed for someone at our level of scale and complexity. Um, if you're someone that's uh, if you're someone that's failing over, you know, hundreds of uh, sorry, hundreds of thousands of vCPUs, uh, you end up with a slightly different scheduling than what you may with uh, ECS. That's probably a bit more user friendly than. Uh, say the Titus environment. So I'd say it's a different business uh, focus as well as we just got started earlier. So the question, maybe to make sure I got the right question, the question was for some of the big data workloads, specifically Flink and Spark, how do we manage sort of the, those clusters within our clusters? Yes, uh, good question. So Titus is staying uh, true probably to the product vision. Another thing I would have mentioned in there is we don't want to be too much. We just want to be a cluster manager, an instance manager for container-based applications. We're perfectly fine if someone then builds a higher level framework that manages those clusters on top of us. And in fact, that's what Flink and Spark has done. So Flink, uh, I know the best, has rewritten sort of the resource manager layer of Flink to call into us and instead of uh, working within its clusters, it just defines clusters against Titus and then it slices those up to run the Flink jobs however it sees fit. We don't know that Flink is running as a framework on top of us. We just know that someone's starting up clusters that Flink is slicing up into uh, its compute workload. Uh, that is actively running on us. That's actually one of our largest set of services that is running on top of Titus. The Spark, they've done the same thing, uh, have recoded the underlying layers of Spark. That hasn't quite got there yet, because if you look at the pool size of Titus versus the pool size of our Spark fleet, it's much, much bigger. So they're waiting for us to get a little bit bigger to kind of dip their uh, toes in our bigger pool. What's that? Yes, yeah, yeah, we're definitely, we run Flink all day long. <laughs> Any questions? Is there one in, was there any on that side? The lights are blinding. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me throw that up. Uh, it's probably easier to have the picture of. And, and I should mention the network driver is in the open source, so if you want to get even more details than I'm about ready to tell you, you're more than welcome to look. Uh, there, right? So what the networking driver does is there's an ENI that comes off of the host that is for the control plane of Titus in general, so that's ENI zero. We, the networking driver will then say, as containers launch on this host, they're going to be told, uh, they're going to tell the host what security group they need to be in. What we'll do is we'll say, is there a ENI already with that security group configured? If it's not, we'll actually reconfigure the ENI for that security group and allocate an IP address, a secondary IP address. So what you can see hanging off of these ENIs is, in this case, there's uh, two containers that are with security group W. They're both would be on ENI 1 and it would set up IP1 and IP2 off of ENI1. And it does all that configuration and then routes that traffic into the container. The other thing it does that I think is really important that a lot of the networking drivers aren't quite doing yet is it classifies the traffic with BPF. 
um, and then it pu pushes it through, and what's, uh, I'm getting deep at this point, and I'm about ready to go under my level of expertise, <laughs> but it goes into a set of intermediate function block devices that are then configured through a hierarchical token bucket that we can apply quota and fair share across the bandwidth, so we can actually do bandwidth isolation as part of our networking driver as well. Was there more to the question? Yeah. So you mentioned about you had to fail over from one region to other region. Yes. Can you give me an example of what kind of failover you see? Like what kind of yep. problem? What, what would cause that to happen? So the question was, what, when will we fail over? What causes us to fail over from region to region? So there's essentially two cases. One happens a lot more frequent than the other. I'll start with the one that happens less frequently, but it's still worth calling out. Sometimes there's elevated API error rates in an AWS region, and when we see that and we don't have a, uh, a clue from Joe as to when they're run, gonna recover, we'd rather get out of the region, let them heal themselves, and then get back into the region later. The second case that happens far more often, I think it's like, it's probably 20 to one, um, far, far more often is someone deploys bad code in part of the Netflix ecosystem, and we can't quickly enough roll back we can't diagnose the problem or we can't remediate the problem. We know that we can get all the traffic redistributed with uh, full service within five to seven minutes. So the rule of thumb is if you're a service team and you own your service, much like Titus, if we, if we mess up Titus and we've done it twice, um, if you can't confirm to the core team that within five to seven minutes you're gonna be able to remediate that problem, they'll start failing the traffic over to another region. And then once it's recovered, we'll fail it back in. It's, a, it's all automated, but it takes a human to kick it off because we don't want to, uh, failing that much traffic around the world is a uh, risky thing as well. So you don't want to be going into that all the time without having a human involved. But once, once a human makes the decision, uh, a whole bunch of the processes are automated of how we scale up the capacity, including Titus. Yes, yeah, so the question was, with the orchestration technologies that have been growing, what would we be doing differently? Um, I think the biggest one that I would call out is, right now, Titus was written that our uh, job management and our instance management were tightly coupled. So when you're a user of Titus, you say, I wanna start a service job with min max desired equals X, Y, Z, or I wanna run a batch job with partitions 10. Um, what that ha happens under the cover is we will start that job, we'll hydrate that job, we'll start your, all your containers, and we manage that as a, as a deep, um, uh, sort of highly coupled uh, environment. Um, I think what we've seen through Kubernetes and actually EC2 before it, separating the concept of instance management versus cluster management is one of the things I think in Titus, uh, not only would we do differently, but we'll probably do differently uh, in 2019. Um, there's probably much more of a longer list there. Um, I think the other thing is really, and, and we've been doing this by the fact that we open sourced, we wish we had more time to open source sooner, uh, but being able to get our technologies out there so others could uh, uh, you know, absorb those technologies. In fact, like the IP targets and ALB uh, support, I think last week the EKS and open source team from AWS implemented a very similar version for ingress to EKS, so I think 
I wouldn't say it's different, but continue to be very open about our work so the container communities go in the direction that's beneficial to us. Exhausted questions? Okay, well, uh, you can find me online, Aspiker, or uh, check our uh, GitHub stuff out uh, and let us know if you have any other questions. Thanks. Thank you.